This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. Now, it's a call-in show, so if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, the number to call is 470-ASK-BILL. That's 470-275-2455. Ask Bill. To find out when to call, check me out on the electric internet machine that you might have around and send us your question and your comments to askbillnye.com. Delighted to report that once again I am joined by my esteemed colleague, writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, William. Uh, Bill, I mean, okay, look, I mean, I know your name, but I have to admit, I have a terrible memory for names in general. I could really use some help with memory. Well, you are in the right place. I was hoping that was going to be your answer. You're in the right place because today... We are joined by a memory expert and a professor of psychology at University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Michael Kahana. Welcome to Science Rules, Dr. Kahana. Pleasure to be here, Bill. Michael, may I call you Michael? Uh, usually people call me Mike, but you can call or me Mike. Michael. Mike, Mike is even better. Crying out loud, I'll so, remember that. We'll have more time in our lives not having to say that extra syllable. <laughs> yes, exactly. we would have. Anyway, so, so you study human memory. I do. What is happening when I remember something? Like, where does memory live, and how do I recall something out of my brain? Well, we still don't really know the answer to that question, Corey. And I think uh, that's we're we're going to keep the show going anyway. (laughs) That's what I'm trying to figure out. Um, But it is neurons, and it is neural connections, and it is the fact that certain neurons become active. They they increase their firing rate, and that triggers downstream connections to other neurons, which trigger those neurons firing. So actually, and you can describe that with mathematical equations. So maybe it is all mathematics and neurons. Mathematics would be a description, a language for talking about what the neurons are doing. Um, Is there something magical beyond that? Perhaps there is. I don't know. That's maybe outside of of what I can study in my laboratory. But hang on. So how do you forget something then? So is it, are you overwriting existing patterns? I don't believe so. What do you believe? I'm not sure. Because I forget stuff all the time, man. Well, I'm not sure we forget anything that we ever knew. 
We don't forget. You don't think we forget anything? We, we just lose access to it. We just exactly. never really knew it. Exactly. Well, some some things we didn't know, right? So there may be some detail in this room. You test me on the memory for something that's written on this table. I maybe didn't encode it, or I didn't encode it strongly enough to have formed a lasting memory. But if I encoded it well enough that I can remember it at the end of this program, is there any reason I shouldn't remember it? towards the end of my life, assuming I live for a long time, I hope. Here's hoping. Exactly. Now, the question is, where did the memory go? You asked, did it get overwritten? Did it get uh, displaced? Did it somehow did get brain sucked cells away? Right. Did, did the cell die? Did the cell yeah. die, right. And I don't, I'm not going to take the most extreme position, which is to say that they're always there stored with perfect fidelity. But I would say that for the most part, when you can't remember something, it's still there. You just can't find it. It's like a room that's cluttered and you lost something, and later on, you'll find it again. Now, are you basing that on intuition? Or are you basing that on mathematics? Uh, mathematics and data, experimental data. And uh, I, I think that there, there are any number of hundreds, if not thousands, of experiments that have shown that when you cue a person in just the right way, they can remember information that under some other condition they couldn't remember at all. And this that was absolutely a true long time ago. In my experience, absolutely true. Try and remember somebody's name. Where did I meet that guy? And then it'll come back to you. Later it comes back to you, right? And and maybe it'll never come back to you under normal circumstances, but what if I could put an electrode in your brain like Wilder Penfield did in the 1930s <laughs> and stimulate a part of the brain and then all of a sudden you have a vivid flashback to something that happened when you were young that is, as far as we can tell, we don't have in those days, they didn't, people didn't walk around with a little videotape recorder, not videotape. What did what they do all day? But they remembered. Uh, they, they remembered using their brains? They remembered using their brains, wow. exactly. And But when, when Penfield in his operating room passed current through certain parts of, for example, temporal cortex, people would occasionally have these incredibly vivid recollections. And we've seen that in the lab, in, not in the laboratory, in the clinic. I do a lot of research with neurosurgical patients. Uh, that We see that occasionally. It's not common. But the fact that that can happen suggests something rather extraordinary, which is that maybe we walk around carrying in our head the vast majority if not nearly all of the memories that we ever had before. We just can't find them at any given moment. So I'm a big-time skeptic, had a lot of fun with skepticism, and eyewitness accounts are not especially good. In other words, people's memories are not especially good. And there's, there's a lot of evidence that people construct memories. So when Penfield, or whoever is going to do it, stimulates a brain electrically, and a memory is produced, and I'm all for it, bring it on, and a memories are memories produced, do we know that it's an authentic memory, not a so-called constructed memory? We don't know, right? So in those days, back 80, 90 years ago, they would have relied on uh, reports from the loved ones of the mm -hmm. person who was there. Uh, maybe in the future, we will know. Um, my, can you construct a test instead of experiments? You can, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, in a paper that was published in the Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience, I missed it. Academic journal, you missed it. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Joshua Jacobs, who's a professor of bioengineering at Columbia, uh, reported studies of a patient who uh, was undergoing neurosurgery for epilepsy who had these vivid flashbacks to 
high school. Actually, it might have even been a high school science class, but that could be a constructed memory on my part because I love science. But some high school class, uh, might have even been a junior high school class, but some school class had very vivid memories. And then what Jacobs, Professor Jacobs did is he then, in a separate occasion, went back and gave this person uh, test items for different topics, including the topics surrounding the vivid memories and other related topics. And he found that the same brain sites, the same locations in the brain, the same electrodes that had been the locus of this vivid recollection of memories about topic X only showed electrophysiological biomarkers of recollection for topic X. So that is a kind of, it's not a perfect, it's not saying that those memories are perfect, but it's saying that those evoked memories were not hallucinations. They were not complete uh-huh. confabulations. Ah, yes, yeah. So Corey, this brings us to a point. It brings us to a point that I, it occurs to me, I'm Maybe remembering, hallucinating. remembering that this is a call-in show. Oh, yes. I'm remembering further that we have a caller on the line who I think will have a, a good question to bring to bear on this topic. Caller number one. What's your name? Hi, I'm Joanna. How are you guys? Hello, Hello Joanna. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from New York, but I'm originally from Caracas, Venezuela. Ah, what's your question? <laughs> so um, my father has uh, an incredible memory. Uh, he, can, he can read a book and literally just recollect all dates, all times. Um, he, he has the brain of, a, I think, a genius to the point where he, when he was nine, he was uh, told by, you know, a psychologist that his brain had the capacity of a child that was much older. Now, this doesn't run in the family. <laughs> no one else has this capacity. The only difference between my dad and the rest of the family is that as a child, he suffered from several epileptic attacks. Um, and, you know, one of our hypotheses as a family is that perhaps these epileptic attacks sort of contributed to his capacity to remember and recall. Um, and I was just curious if, you know, if there's scientific <laughs> proof to back that hypothesis up. Mike? Wow, I feel like there are two questions in there. I mean, really, the first question is, is there really such a thing as photographic memory? Right. Well, we call eidetic memory. Yeah, eidetic memory. And there was a literature on this back in the 70s. It was a hot topic. Uh, the Habers at Yale University worked on it. Children appear to have, so by eidetic memory, what's usually meant in the scientific study of memory is memory for very precise visual images, things that you've seen before, like imagining a book where you can actually look at the page and read the words right off the page. In your, from your head. From your head, right. Now, of course, in children, you don't see that kind of eidetic imagery, but with children, you might show them a very complex visual image with lots and lots of details. And for one of us, we'd look at it and we'd say like some fantasy scene with a castle and a knight. And a child with this type of eidetic memory, or some people might call photographic memory, would describe vivid, precise details about the colors and the shapes and the configuration. Right. So, so Joanna, is this the kind of thing you're talking about? It's very much like that. And um, although he can't remember the name of, like, my best friend, he can remember exactly what page he read something on in a book, you know, years ago. So I do that all the time, Joanna. 
I'm con- I'm looking for something in a book. I I I can swear to myself that I know where it is on the page. Mm-hmm. I'm often not correct, mm-hmm. but I have a yeah. So there's no an, really. I have a memory of where I'm going to go looking on the page. People actually do have a good memory for where things are on the page. They don't even realize it. But if you uh, if you keep the positions of the items on the page in their correct form, it assists with memory. Uh, Ernst Rothkopf uh, did a very nice study of that in the 60s. So people have this kind of positional memory, even not realizing it, they have it. And some people exploit this positional memory to great advantage in memorizing large quantities of, of text. And uh, for example, mm-hmm. scholars of the, uh, of the Talmudic text will often remember exactly where words are, where phrases are on the pages of the Talmud, which is uh, like an encyclopedia of, of uh, ancient Jewish laws uh, with many thousands and thousands of pages. And um, scholars of the Talmud can often tell you exactly where, what position a particular phrase appeared on, on what page. So to Joanna's question, is there any connection between her father's Early, do you call them traumas? What do you call it? An epileptic seizures. A, a, but I mean, is it classified as a as a a trauma, an event? I'm sure these an would exciting be, adventure. What is it based on what we know scientifically? These would be independent. Um, that that the the fact that he had seizures as a child should not. Th- there's no data that I've ever heard of that would connect that to having a good memory. In fact, people who have epilepsy generally have some memory impairment. Not all people with epilepsy. Some people with epilepsy just have think what your father but. could have done, Joanna, if he hadn't. <laughs> Oh my gosh! <laughs> that's messing um, around. But but some people do have phenomenal memory, and that's not not an area of study that I have pursued. Uh, it's difficult to do those kinds of studies. Some people have phenomenal autobiographical memory. Some people have phenomenal visual memory, and there's much that's been written and done about it. A lot of times, though, phenomenal memory is less a function of some special biology of a person, but more expertise. So. People might say, I have a phenomenal, phenomenal memory for memory facts. I don't really have a good memory for about anything else. Uh, but my students will say, how do you remember that? How do you remember that study, that year, that publication? That's about all I remember. Uh, yeah. So, Joanna, do you, um, yes. does your father meet somebody, learn the person's name, and remember it? Um, it do you know what I'm talking really. about? I think you meet somebody like at a party, you shake hands. He or she tells you his name, her name, and then you don't know. How That's exactly other. what I'm talking about. It yeah. happens to me all the time. Does your father do that? So he doesn't remember the name, but he'll remember, for example, if they told him a story with a fact in it about uh, a date or a time, he'll remember that. I think it's because he just doesn't care about names and he cares <laughs> about the stories or the facts. Um, so he, he chooses what he has a memory of. Um but, you know, if you ask him, you know, what happened in 1907, he'll, he'll tell you exactly what happened in 1907 in a variety of countries. Um, well, now I feel like the, the family folklore that this was all caused by a epileptic attack. Is, is, I'm going to have to go back in Thanksgiving and break we're, everyone's we're sorry, heart. We're sorry to complicate that. your life. But, well, but- the good news is there may be some <laughs> recessive gene and maybe one of your descendants will once again have a phenomenal memory just like your dad. Or maybe he just trained himself to be able to do that. Oh, I I hope so. Stick around for more Science Rules after this.
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Science Rules is back. Uh, I know we have you know, we have visual memory. There's verbal memory. Can you have are, are there are these different things in the brain? Can they can you be better at one than at the other? Well, that's a really great question, and it's a question I came back this morning. I was at the Memory Disorders Research Society meetings here at Columbia University, which is uh, what one of the uh, two important things that I came here to do in New York. And um, there's a big this debate about This being the other that. one? This being, of course. Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. I was hoping that would be the answer. Yes. I was afraid to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, but there's a big debate about whether the brain has distinct memory systems as opposed to a network of memory processes that operate on different kinds of information. And when you change the nature of the information that you feed the system, it could appear as if it functions according to different rules. This is a so science rule. So what's the nature rules, of information? Uh, in other words, uh, memorizing or learning somebody's name, is that a form of, uh, is that a different form of information from, say, mathematics? Well, certainly you have a lot of memories of names. And I suspect, Corey, you've probably met a lot of people. and uh, A couple, yeah. Right? You've met a lot of people. And as you have more... and. Before, I suggested that maybe we don't forget anything. So perhaps the reason you can't remember names is actually you remember too many names, and they're all sort of blurred together in your mind. So it's not that you actually didn't learn the name and you don't remember the name. It's just that, that the, the faces, you've met, you have many faces stored in memory. You have many names stored in memory. So as you accumulate more and more of these memories, the probability that any given face will be associated with some other set of, I mean, it's similar to other faces associated with different names. You can make it very hard to remember those. When I started teaching um, at the University of Pennsylvania and I had a class of about 90, 100 kids, human memory class, I thought, well, you know, I want, I want to do something fun, right? Like fun for the kids. So I will try to memorize all of their names. And I'm not going to say that I memorized every single one of their names, but I got pretty close. In the first few weeks of class, I could remember almost every student's name. And of course, it was fun because you have a class of 100 kids, somebody raised their hand, and you say, uh, I remember one particular uh, uh, student whose name was Corey. It just came up, there to, we go. Uh, came up in my what mind. What more uh, could a kid hope for? Today. And, uh, and then there was Eric with an I. He introduced himself at the end of class. He may be listening to your podcast, Eric with an I. Hi, Eric with the I. Anyway, I remember their names, and now I can't do that anymore. Is it because I have, at the age of 50, lost the capacity to do this? Or perhaps is it that having done this for so many years with so many classes, it's just there's too many similar memories, and the challenge of finding a memory becomes very hard. And of course, if you can't find it, then you're maybe not going to try as hard to encode it. We have more callers on the line. Let's, yeah, uh, let's, let's, let's see one. what they're thinking about, what they're remembering. 
I believe we have uh, Mike on the line. Uh, Mike, are you there? Yeah, how's it going? Uh, it's going well. How's it going over there? Oh, not too bad. The sun's out, so. Uh, where, are where is there? Uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. And Hi, what, is, what is your question? So, you know, as much as new research and emerging research and technology is helping us understand the brain and memory more, would you also think that technology could potentially be hindering our memory on our brains? You know, we don't have to memorize phone numbers or addresses anymore. Or We're getting lazy. Spell check even. You know, we're getting lazy out. Yes. There. And, and there is research out of the psychology department at Stanford showing uh, that that just that. So there are uh, there are experiments that show that um, uh, the use of technology can be uh, detrimental to your ability to to learn and to maintain to multitask in particular. So so um, secondly, I am I'm always skeptical of the term multitask. People do one task at a time, maybe changing between this one and that one, but you're really doing one at a time, my opinion. Right. And when I can't remember something, it's because my mind is off trying to do something else. That's exactly how I see it. But it sounds like, Mike, you're asking two things. Uh, First of all, okay, first of all, if we don't remember things as well because our phones keep track of all the phone numbers. You just have to remember the person's name, not his or her number, whereas you used to have to know both. Right. Does that free up our brain to remember other stuff? Or do you become lazy about it and you don't remember other stuff? And in the long, what's my favorite thing, Corey? Other than Bill Nye, I believe it's evolution. Evolution. Is there an advantage to learning a new skill of how to find information rather than remembering the information itself or itself. <laughs> well, I think the jury is still out on this very important question. So does reliance on technology, does the ability to have memory aids harm or, or help? What's your feeling about it? I think that when you're not used to learning and remembering information, then you are not going to be using those same strategies, those same aids in other circumstances, and it's going to be harder for you. So I think that, I think that aspect is pretty clear. But the question is, if I set up a situation where I trained you and I forced you to learn, how would that be impacted by um, long-term technology use? And I think we still have to figure out the answer to that question. I'd love to know. Mike, on the phone, do you have an opinion? Yeah, I mean, Basically, you know, with that kind of thing, just even witnessing my eight-year-old on the phone or not learning spelling tests and other things in school even at third grade, that, you know, it's, it's making people a little bit more lazy and lackadaisical, as you pointed out. It just seems like as good as it can be, you know, with all this information, I don't think people are, are utilizing it as much as they could. You know, instead of trying to learn the word that spell check is showing you, you know, the correct spelling of you just click on it and go. Well, I think there could be an aspect of maybe focusing on those kind of things with it, where it could help you actually build even more and more, you know, kind of on your base. So yeah. Mike in Cincinnati, Mike Ohana in the studio, an old uh, expression, which was, uh, which was worthy uh, way of going about things. You couldn't remember how to spell a word or you were uncertain of how to spell a word. What would you be told to do? What would I tell myself to do? Look it up. Okay. okay, so you don't know how to spell it, but you know approximately how to spell it. You know where to look 
in a conventional dictionary for those younger listeners. <laughs> This was a paper-based, as a plant-based information storage. These are like really thin pieces of wood with dark markings on them yes, that resemble words. That resemble the I, words I you see that. on a computer yeah, screen. Yeah. yeah. And so you would look between the key words on dictionary pages looking for the spelling. And sometimes you'd find it right away because you'd recognize it. And other times, uh, uh, a good friend of mine is just never sure about broccoli. Are there two C's and one L or two, one C and two L's, for example? And along the way, you encode that word spelling in relation to the words that came right before and after it, which provides a scaffold for that knowledge, which can be very helpful. So scaffold is one of my fave expressions. And thank you, Mike, in the studio. I claim that the more trivia you know, a person knows, the Jeopardy contestant, for example, it means that he or she has a framework. And the word I often like is scaffold for finding this stuff. Indeed. So what I think we all want to know, Mike in Cincinnati, Ohio, and his eight-year-old uh, offspring person, is do you have a son or a daughter, Mike, on the phone? I'm sorry. Daughter. Daughter. See, because I couldn't remember. Mm. It, are there techniques, tricks for remembering things? And then do, are there scaffolds upon scaffolds? Are there blocks, Absolutely. city blocks of scaffolds? Absolutely. And this has been well-studied and well-documented um, that uh, experts form these uh, structures, these knowledge structures, and they aid them enormously in finding the information. Uh, I want to come back to Daniel Burstyn, the uh, former librarian. How of do you remember that? Who, uh, <laughs> who, who wrote many wonderful books. Uh, I think one of them was The Americans, but one of them was The Discoverers. It's Love a great that. Book. That's a great book. And in that book, there's a little tiny chapter or section called The Lost Arts of Memory. And this book must have been written in, I think, the 70s, maybe even the early the 70s. The 1970s? Yes. Okay, here's it sounds a little bit. I just like to remind everybody, Mike in Cincinnati, Socrates complained about kids today. I just want to point that out. Kids today can't remember anything. When yeah, I they, was they, young. Yeah, they write everything down on their scrolls. They're not remembering the way we used to. Well, Burstyn in this book talks about what happened when the printing press was uh, made highly It was the available. worst thing ever. It was a disaster. People were worried that they wouldn't remember anything because now they could look it up in books. And the lost arts of memory was about the fact that in the 16th century, I know the printing press was available 100 years before, but it wasn't. If you lived in the right place had yeah, access. But, but by 100, 150 years after the Gutenberg Bible was printed, all of a sudden, if you were in the right place, if you were an educated class, you could access knowledge in a library with books. You go to the library and you get the books. And, and people were very upset about this because now they didn't have to practice the arts of memory. And the fear was that the arts of memory would be lost. And he writes about this with such... Such eloquence. eloquence in the 1970s saying like, you know, will we ever know what it would be like? And of course, here we are. And I think in some ways, technology has been a bigger change between 1970 and today than it was between the fifth, 14th century and the 17th century in terms of the ability to quickly access any kind of information you want. So Mike in Cincinnati, did that help? Is there yeah, a way for your daughter to yeah, scaffold if, if we, her If stuff? we survive the invention of the printing press, we'll probably survive this too. It's funny how things come full circle. I mean, I'm sure parents today complain about some of the similar things that parents before complained about with their kids. So that's kind of, I mean, what Socrates was getting at was he was worried that everyone was going to lose their memory then, and we're worried about it now just for a different reason. That's good. Yes. 
Mike Kahana. Yeah, maybe say. I shouldn't say this on air, but my own maybe recommendation maybe. as a memory scientist is that maybe it's a good idea to keep kids a little bit further away from technology until they really need it. Um, How do you feel about flashcards? Flashcards are not joking. Are good. They're great. Uh, and, and certain kinds of technology, but I mean, having a, chi a young child being uh, given access to, without, um, without constraints, the ability to instantly jump around between different kinds of media and such. And, and it's just, it's something one should be very cautious and, about. And you have several kids yourself. I do, five of them. And, and did you do that? Did you keep them away from electronics? Uh, well, our 13-year-old just recently got a phone, and he only uses it to reach us when he's at um, track meets to uh, have us uh, pick him up. And uh, he has no interest in the uh, – uh, in fact, he, he says that one of the challenges at school is that uh, all the kids are on their devices all the time. Kids today. Exactly. Yeah. So I, you know, I, um, I, talk, I ride the subway here in New York and in Washington, D.C., and – it was historically there's trouble with people going. You're Bill Nye, or what's your real name? And so, and but now everybody's looking at his or her phone. They don't even. I just come and go. So you're and telling so, me that there is a, there's an upside to all of this, uh, yeah. <laughs> at least for Bill Nye. Yeah. So um, uh, I have another. Well, I guess let's take another call. Let's take another call. Let's let's uh, let's talk to Tamara. Is it Tamara or Tamara? Tamara. Tamara. Tomorrow. tomorrow, there you go. All right, tomorrow. And Hello, and welcome to Science Rules. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Virginia. All right, that's a big place. Where in Virginia? Uh, Fredericksburg. Fredericksburg, sure. It's a yeah. nice location. Lovely, especially in the fall. So, uh, tomorrow, uh, you have a question. I do. Um, it's about uh, filing errors that occur during a traumatic events. So you undergo a traumatic event, and your body goes through, you know, fight or flight, and um, it doesn't process the memory correctly. And then later on, you find out that you suffer from PTSD, um, and it comes back and, you know, flashbacks, be it emotional flashbacks or hallucinatory flashbacks or body flashbacks. Um, is there a way to, if, if the memory is nothing but a matrix and a scaffold, to they correct that memory error and to actually file that memory appropriately. So that way, basically having like a treatment for people who have PTSD or CPTSD or other disorders. So did you have that. a traumatic event tomorrow? A few. Yeah. And um, so what you'd like to few. do, if I understand the use of this verb, you'd like to compartmentalize them so they weren't as troublesome. Well, it affects, it affects things differently. Um, so, I mean, uh, basically it's around gun violence and mass shootings, things like that. Unfortunately, I've seen more than one. So and my brain has affected it differently based on the different stages of my life that I was in, right? So when I was little, um, I don't have any memory of it whatsoever. So I have zero memory of it. But when the Virginia Tech shooting happened, I have an incredible memory of it. But it comes back in various ways because it's it's traumatic, right? So, and you can never guess when it's going to happen. You can never guess what's going to trigger that memory, which has the memory processing error on it, to say, "Oh, hi." Well, you're today calling is, in an error right now is when we're going to have it. One woman's right. error is calling another, in an mem error. another right. memory expert's feature. 
So is there a way to move memories around in this especially traumatic memories? Well, first of all, Tamara, I'm really sorry to hear that you endured those traumatic memories. And I, I know that many listeners have endured traumatic memories. They're a lot more common than people sometimes realize. Um, and one of the... Uh, one of the features of traumatic memories is that you often uh, have difficulty reconstructing exactly the chronology of what happened during the traumatic episode, and you have these fragments that may be very powerfully evoked when certain triggers take place, but it's hard to reconstruct the full narrative. I don't know, Tamara, if you know specifically that there is a particular error in your memory that has been reinforced through repeated uh, rehearsals, retellings, flashbacks of the memory, or if it's just something that you're surmising as being an error? Right. I mean, it's kind of because it's not one instance. I'm assuming my brain sort of did whatever it needed to do in that moment. Um, I wouldn't assume that there's an whatever error. that was. I wouldn't assume that there's an error. I would just assume that when a memory is traumatic, when an experience is traumatic, it's very hard to reconstruct it in the same manner that you would reconstruct a normal narrative memory, especially when components of that memory forcefully come upon you uh, and, and are triggered by certain things in the environment or in your cognitive milieu, in your mental environment. It may be that those interrupt the normal memory process that would allow you to reconstruct This is so cool. This is so cool. Hang on now. And if tomorrow, stay tuned if you're inclined. Uh, so yeah. most of us want to have more memory, right? We want to be able to remember more things, more accurately, uh, more fidelity, I guess. But in this case, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, I, I'm sorry that you went through this, but you want to be able to suppress them. Is that a is that a real word? You uh, actually do not want to suppress them. And any good therapist would tell you. Don't try to suppress the traumatic memories. What you want to do is you want to um, be in a safe context and relive those memories within the safe context of a therapeutic session under the supervision of a, of a therapist who is experienced in treating um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, there's a, a very well-known technique developed by Edna Foa, uh, that involves uh, Edna Foe is a professor of psychiatry, a very highly regarded expert on PTSD. And uh, it involves actually trying to bring these memories up, but in a safe context and re-encode them outside of the traumatic context in which they either were experienced or in which you recapitulate them in your own mind. So, so. But there, but there have been experiments of uh, using drugs, using chemicals to treat PTSD or to, to sort of affect uh, memory recall. Has, have those been successful? Well, I'm not an expert on PTSD, and I could certainly connect you with some people who are. Because but it's that's, a source uh, of fascination. It is a source of fascination. And to my knowledge, the one, uh, the one therapy that has been proven in the scientific literature is the therapy where you do not try to forget, but you actually try to remember. And you try and remember it in a safe context rather than trying to forget it. And actually, there's evidence to suggest that by trying to forget it, you might actually make your symptoms worse. Well, tomorrow, right, this tomorrow. is a great call. Thank well, you. Th thank you, and, and good luck yeah, to you. Great. Thanks. You took us down a wonderful road. Thank you. Science Rules will be right back.
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You're listening to Science Rules. Now, Dr. Kahana, Mike. Mike. Uh, Mike, if I may. You not just study memory, you actually study the, whether there are ways to adjust or even improve the recall of memory. How do you do that? Well, so of course, there are lots of ways that you can improve your memory by learning mnemonic techniques and by uh, uh, being highly focused and really caring to learn. But uh, of course, sometimes a person has brain damage or neurodegenerative disease and you need something more to try to intervene in the physiology and make memory better. And so one of the things that I work on, and many people now, it's become a a hot area of research, uh, is using brain stimulation, electrical stimulation of the human brain to try and see if we can boost memory. So what do you drill holes in people's heads? What do we do? Well, neurosurgeons do drill holes in people's heads to take care of their illness if they have, for example, uh, intractable epilepsy, severe epilepsy. uh, Okay, but you're onto another thing of enhancing memory, right? Right. So traditionally, electrical stimulation was used to temporarily and reversibly lesion the brain, meaning to make it not work. So electrical stimulation was used historically in the clinic to say, if we shut off this part of the brain, will the patient be unable to speak or unable to understand language or unable to remember? And in that case, we'll make sure to avoid hurting that part of the brain. So as we're as the physicians are trying to treat the epilepsy, they want to make sure that they're not going to cause a functional impairment. And they can do that by doing mapping of the brain with electrical stimulation. That's one technique. Now you can use functional magnetic resonance imaging to help assist in the mapping of the brain and other methods as well. Now we can say, well, instead of using electrical stimulation to shut off the functions of the brain, can we do it to kind of coax or nudge the brain from a state of poor function into a state of better function? Can we juice up the function of this part of the brain? So rather than stop it from working, can we make it work better? And the answer is? Sometimes you can. And uh, one approach, the one that we uh, published in a couple of papers is to uh, use electrical stimulation that is controlled by or timed to uh, signals in the brain that signify forgetting or, or a lapse in learning. So if you can predict when memory is expected to fail, maybe you can tweak the brain a little bit with a little jolt of very small safe current to make it function better. So in a sense, you, you, you boost memory by suppressing forgetting. I actually misspoke. So I said forgetting, but I didn't really mean forgetting. What I meant, it's a little bit more complicated, is that the brain is constantly vacillating between different degrees of efficiency with which it computes stuff. Computing stuff for memory, for mathematics, for remembering words or language or anything else. So the brain does stuff and it varies over time. So so sometimes it works better. Sometimes I can't find the right word and I'm trying to write a paper and sometimes it pops to mind easily. And if you can decode those those, um, variability in the brain's natural capacity to, whether it's learn or recall, then you could try to push it out of a bad state. When you push it out of a bad state, where is it going to go? Well, it Make goes it stop suppressing. Exactly. Or, exactly. or access, jump from one scaffold to another. Exactly. That's right. Simple enough. Okay. Wow. So, so you can do this. You can actually make the brain a little more efficient. 
Right. So in in uh, in the study that we uh, published last year in well 2018, um, we showed that you can enhance memory by about 18 percent through precisely timed electrical stimulation. About 18 percent. That's a couple significant digits, right lateral there. Lateral temporal cortex. It's actually so 18 percent. You know, you could say is that a little or is it a lot? And it really depends on your perspective. But sounds like a uh, lot. It, yeah, I I think it's good. Keeping in mind that 18% is an average, meaning that there were some patients who did not exhibit any improvement and others who exhibited a 40% or even 50% improvement. Okay, this, this brings us, doctor, to this, this thing. Our memories seem to get worse as we get older. Indeed. And the ultimate uh, or an ultimate expression of this is Alzheimer's disease, right? So if, if we start with your assertion, claim, observation, that we really remember everything. We just can't get to the memories. Is Alzheimer's a situation where you can't get to the memories? Well, that's really important and difficult problem. So uh, Alzheimer's disease is associated with the degeneration of brain systems. And it, uh, it involves many processes that I'm, uh, are outside of my specific area of expertise. But um, I think that we can, we can think of two aspects of uh, of memory. One is the variation in memory in a healthy or a diseased person from moment to moment, and the other is the decline over time. And you're talking about the decline over time. I'm asking about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. Well, I mean, the, the decline over time, first of all, may be the result of multiple pathophysiological processes. So, there may be multiple uh, aspects of brain function that are uh, suffering from disease that are going to make it get worse and worse. But at any given time in an individual who's suffering from memory loss, there are going to be good days and bad days. And the approach that I was talking about was, how do you make your bad days look more like your good days? Mm -hmm. The question of how you slow the decline or even stop the decline or maybe miraculously reverse the decline. That's another aspect of the problem. And I'm not sure that the, um, that may require other kinds of interventions in the brain. All right. Okay. But for, for me, and I suspect for a lot of our listeners, if there was some way that, you know, my memory on a typical day could be as good as it was 10 or 20 years ago, that would be a pretty impressive and exciting thing. That would be astonishing. That'd be wonderful. Is what you're describing a a pathway to get there? Indeed, it is. And so, in fact, you can say that an 18% improvement in memory, well, maybe 18% is roughly the amount of decline in memory that you would experience between, say, age 50 and age 60-something. I'm not sure exactly 60-what for an average person, right? So, certainly 10 years, maybe even 20 years, somewhere between 10 and 20 years. So, this would be a, a technology that could conceivably if it worked not just in our little experiment, but if it translated to a real-world application, which I hope it would, would potentially make your memory look more like it did 10, 15, or even 20 years ago. Okay, hang on. We got a couple more cool questions. I, I want to read Hunter's question. because Hunter's question is similar to a question I had. Yeah, it is. Only sure it uh, is. Hunter from Wilton, Connecticut, uh, really yeah, took it to 11. Uh, in a world... Where memory-enhancing tech has become commonplace, he asks. This uh, is in the future, the future. Work with me, Corey. In the, in the future, out. people are going are to be walking around saying, 
why is that weird noise playing all the time? The features can be very strange is that, that from way. The Jetsons? Yeah. That seems sort of remember something like that. Theremin, from the 70s. Uh, okay. yeah. In a world where memory enhancing uh, tech has become commonplace, should it be looked at with the same scrutiny as we look at steroids today? Uh, so, like in games where memory is an advantage, wouldn't a, wouldn't a, an implant or some kind of enhancement technology give you a, a sort of an unfair edge? Right. So this is a very very deep and difficult problem, and it's something that uh, I will say this is a topic that is so hard that it's for the ethicists, for the medical ethicists and the uh, people who think hard about these issues. I mean, right now, the technology that I've been involved with would be a medical device that would hopefully someday treat people who are desperately in need of assistance to, to deal with a devastating loss of memory, either due to traumatic brain injury or dementia. Could this be like a portable uh, device? I mean, how would it how would it even work? Well, the, the technology that I envision would be a medical device and it would be implanted in the brain and it would be specifically prescribed to individuals for whom nobody would say they shouldn't have this aid. That would be like saying that somebody shouldn't have a replacement uh, limb when they lost a limb. But once the cat is out of the bag, right, and once the technology uh, can be used more broadly, then where do you draw the line and what do you do? And and I guess it's a, it's a really interesting and a really difficult question. And uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's a question for medical ethicists to think hard about. So are you a medical ethicist? I am certainly not. And I'll, I'll leave, that to, <laughs> leave that to them. All I'll say is that at various points in time, people have asked me, are you going to not do what you're doing because we could envision a world in which bad things would come of this technology. And I get emails, at least anytime there's a news story about my work, I get emails from victims, from, from sufferers, from people who are dealing with the devastating effects of memory loss. And I read those emails and I'm like, no, there's no, I do not have a choice. I have to do what I'm doing. Somebody will have to figure out how to put a lid on it and make sure that it is used properly. Well, this and is what people have talked about in every scientific development. Absolutely. In fact, that's what people were critical, critical of novels. When books were created with stories, the world's going to hell. Now young people are just going to read books all day. They won't have the mental capacity to do anything useful. Right, right. So. <laughs> I, was, I was reading this, uh, this article that somebody republished from Scientific American from the late 1800s, uh, decrying that uh, people, kids were playing chess. Instead, yeah, of, yeah. Instead, of, instead of going out and learning proper motor skills and you know, you know, learning how to play good sports and, and being healthy, they were just sitting inside being sickly and just moving pieces around on a chessboard. Right. So, yeah, I think uh, technology is going to move forward and uh, we have to be thoughtful about how we, uh, how we use it and how we develop it. Of course, there's non-invasive methods. So my lab is one lab of many. There are now dozens of labs around the world and many of them are studying non-invasive, meaning techniques to improve memory that do not involve brain surgery. So how do you right? do it? And, and so that would involve some type of a helmet, perhaps, that you could wear. It's a, it could be, and then it's a consumer device, right? And, and you could put your uh, futuristic sound on for that one, but that's a consumer device. You could go to like Walmart and buy and one would of like, them. And, it would stimulate your brain with, like, with magnetism or? or yeah, sure, you know, electricity, magnetism, right? There are lots of products. Now, if it's a consumer product, nobody, the FDA is not going to check to see if it, 
if it follows the claims that they made and if people decide they want to use it, assuming that there's no really good reason to think it's going to harm you, uh, you can use it and, um, well, may or may not work. Bill, if memory serves me correct, that uh, signifies lightning round. That's the, the lightning thu- the round. The thunder that, uh, that weirdly precedes the lightning round. I don't understand. Uh, <laughs> well, you don't see effect. the lightning on the radio. Yeah, but cause and effect uh, seems out of, out of, out of whack here well, that, the, see, light, that really the thunder comes before the lightning. Of, of uh, audio belief. So anyway, uh, Mike, Dr. Kahana, this is where we ask you a question, you give a quick answer. Quick question, quick answer. Okay, let's do it. Would you... Uh, what would you like to forget? Uh, nothing. The bad you... habits, I guess. My bad habits I'd like to forget. For example? Oh, no. Not on the air. Okay. No, no, no. We'll move on. What would you like to... Take the next question for uh, What would you $100? like to remember? Remember forever. Oh, remember forever. My, uh, I will remember them forever. My, uh, my wonderful, beloved family. There you go. Would you want a perfect memory where you uh, remember everything perfectly? You have access to everything. I have a perfect memory. I don't want it any more perfect than it is. Okay. Uh, Okay, there you go. Nice answer. Well said. Is there any memory movie that you especially love? You mentioned Total Recall earlier. I I think Inside Out, except for the part where the vacuum sucks up the memories that you don't use, I think Inside Out is a really nice movie. I like it quite a bit. It's a children's movie and a wonderful, wonderful movie. If you could take your whole life experience, your self, your personality, everything that's in your brain and put it in an electronic receptacle indefinitely, live indefinitely electronically, would you go for it? Well, that absolutely is happening because uh, everything I do is being recorded in the brains of everybody that I'm interacting with, and it will be transmitted through those, as their behavior and their memories and their use of those memories, it will be transmitted through the future forever. And you're, you're happy with that? I'm very happy with Because even though you might not be here to be part of that. But this podcast will be forever. I, I, just, hope, I just hope that I help people make good memories. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Ah. Nicely said. Our guest today has been Mike Kahana. Uh, professor of memory. Uh, is that accurate? We say uh, professor of psychology, but I do study memory. And yes. studies memories at University of Pennsylvania. And uh, you have given us a great deal of insight about the nature of memory, the nature of trauma, the nature of remembering traumas, how we remember things, our neural network. It's just been a fantastic Thank discussion. A, a lot to think about. Thank you for that. Uh, it's been you. an honor for me and a pleasure to speak with both of you and for to speak with all the guests who've called in. Thanks so much. Thank you. I am Bill Nye. I'm, oh, I, I'm Corey S. Powell. Remember, when it comes to the remembering <laughs> part of there. our universe. I was trying to help you out. <laughs> when it comes, that was a hilarious irony, I hope. When it comes to the memory part of our universe, Corey, science Science rules. rules. Now, if you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out and it helps other people learn about the show so they too can experience science rules. And I hope turn it up loud. So thank you for listening. Be sure to look at my socials. For when to call in the show, the the facing of the book, the instant of the gramming, and I'm at Bill Nye on all those things. And meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you may remember this technology. Give us a call at 201-472-0785. 
Now, Science Rules is produced by Jordan Bell and Corey S. Powell. Yeah. With extra production from Lisa Wang, who also screens your phone calls. Our engineer today is Casey Halford, the very same Casey Halford who mixed this episode and composed our original theme music. Special thanks to Claire Rawlinson and Ashley Warren. Daisy Rosero is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the CCO, Chief Content Officer here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, Corey, science rules. Stitcher. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.